South London bedroom not so far away. Obi-Wan Kenobi has returned to our screens in the shape of a Disney limited series. His influence is felt throughout an analysis of John Adams's early compositions. The city of Bradford is in the ascendancy, supported by the Dark Minister Dorries. Tim has responded to this alarming event with a thorough inquisition. Luke Skywalker and his slightly larger doppelganger contribute what they can amid talk of a new knight who we can only hope will bring balance back to the galaxy. off the news quiz with a story from Iceland's Phallological mm-hmm. Museum, where a penis cast of which 1960s rock musician has gone on display? A museum dedicated to phalluses. Superb. Yeah, it's um, a penis museum. 60s rock musician getting plaster casted. Uh, Jagger? That would, I would have thought it was Jagger. Would make news. Yeah, but it's not. It's Jimi Hendrix. It was donated by the late artist Cynthia Britain, a.k.a. Cynthia Plastercaster, who was immortalised in a 1977 Kiss song of the same name. But what, Sam, was the name of the album that song appeared on? I think that's on Love Gun. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> Which feels like it could appear in the Phallological Museum yeah, it itself. Yeah, it does. He's my biggest. No, he's not my biggest, Old Britain said of the Hendrix cast. There are bigger-ish others, but I couldn't say whether or not he's my most exciting because they're my sweet babies and I am their mama. Others to have had body parts cast by Cynthia include Pete Shelley of Suitably the Buzzcocks, Karen O of The Yeah Yeah Yeahs and former classical music pod guest Peaches. What a blue note to start on to. <laughs> Thank you. One singer who I'm assuming hasn't is Mariah Carey. Why is she in the news this week? I saw this. There's somebody else who's written or claiming they wrote All I Want for Christmas before her or something. 
uh, Andy Stone was a co-writer on a song with the same name that was released five years earlier, and he's claiming mm. at least $20 million in damages Ooh. for causing confusion and not asking permission. Would you like to hear a clip short enough for us to avoid a copyright case of our own? I'd love to. As you can hear, in contrast to the recent Ed Sheeran Shape of You debacle, Stone's song sounds nothing like Mariah's, and neither is it clear why the legal challenge has only been made now, 28 years after her song was released. I guess money. I bet he needs some money. Mm -hmm. But it feels such a different culture. You think back to sort of the Baroque era where everyone's borrowing each other's melodies or mm -hmm. librettos are being written three times over, you know, I'll have an opera on it, I'll have another one on Orpheus. Everyone's writing about Orpheus. Mm -hmm. uh, it just... Maybe it's the money, maybe it's just legalese has improved since then. But yeah. the litigation has definitely upped in the pop music world lately. Mm -hmm. Next question. What do you think happened to Georgian pianist Alexander Toradze during a performance of Stravinsky and Shostakovich concertos with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra USA last month? Oh. Stravinsky and Shostakovich concertos is hard to say. Maybe it's hard to play. Did he tire himself out? Well, that's a sort of macabrely accurate guess, actually. Apparently, the morning of the concert, he was experiencing extreme fatigue and couldn't walk unaided, but insisted on playing anyway. And afterwards, a doctor took him to the hospital, where it was discovered he had suffered acute heart failure while performing. Whoa. But thankfully, he's doing well and even left a message for the members of the orchestra. Things are looking very fine. And I'll be in maybe probably a couple of days out and running. While we're on the subject, Sam, are you interested in a quick and hopefully not too tasteless timeline of historical figures who did die on stage? Always. 1673. Moliere, the French actor and playwright, dies after being seized by a violent coughing fit while playing the title role in his play La Malade Imaginaire, or... The Hypochondriac. 1897, during a performance of Friedrich von Flotow's Martha at the Metropolitan Opera, French bass Armand Castelmeri dies of a heart attack. The 2,500-strong audience, believing his collapse to be a stroke of acting genius, reward him with a loud ovation as the curtain is lowered. 1937. French organist and composer Louis Vierne dies at the Notre Dame Cathedral while performing his 1750th organ recital. His foot lands on the low E pedal, which continues to resonate until his body is moved. 1960, during the aria Morir Tremenda Cosa in Act 3 of Verdi's La Forza del Destino, American baritone Leonard Warren collapses, becoming the second singer to die on stage at the Met. Morir Tremenda Cosa translates as to die a momentous thing. Morbid. Morbid. Thankfully, the wonders of modern medicine mean that such cases are vanishingly rare today, though, on a more serious side note, greater awareness of heart conditions has come with its own set of ethical dilemmas for performers. Sam, you'll remember Danish footballer Christian Eriksen mm. having his Inter Milan contract terminated after being fitted with an ICD following his collapse in the Euros. Yeah. Recently, the actor John Last was dropped by his agent as a result of being diagnosed with a heart condition, and he's now calling for best practice guidelines to be produced to prevent other performers from being treated this way. 
Yeah, and it's great to see Christian Eriksen back with Brentford. I hope John Last continues to work, but pre-existing medical conditions are part of the American medical vernacular, and I hope that they don't come over here as something that we all have to think about. Mm-hmm. Lots of musicians would probably be in trouble if they had to maintain peak physical fitness. <laughs> uh, but perhaps we would be able to flip it uh, and use it as leverage to insist on better working conditions. You know, if you want me in health, you, if you want me healthy. You can't have me working 12-hour days over here and doing all this mm. and that. You know, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. Good point. You can read an interview that John Last gave to the stage last week in the podcast episode description. Next question. Who this week became the first British-born classical pianist to be made a sir since Sir Clifford Curzon in 1977? Huff, 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 oh, huff, yes. huff, huff, Stephen. Stephen. Stephen Huff. Quick bit of Huff appreciation He's made 70 recordings. He's appeared 29 times at the BBC Proms. Wow. He's written four books, with one more on the way. He's composed a cello concerto for Stephen Islis, and he was named by The Economist as one of 20 living polymaths. He also apparently uncovered a mistake in Tchaikovsky's piano concerto number one, 138 years after the work was finished. If you're listening, Stephen, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Hey, well, his greatest achievement is probably his book recommendation he did for us last summer, right? Oh, yeah, that's the point. He has been on the podcast. Well, in a more extended form. Now he's a knight. (laughs) Sam, can you tell me which UK city has supposedly the oldest purpose-built classical concert hall in the country? Ooh. Well, I know that the uh, Sheldonian in Oxford is old, but I think that they used the Bath concert rooms for some Ken Russell film because they were particularly old. Mm, well, I have Bradford down. Delightful. St. George's Hall. I did try and fact check this and I couldn't, which makes me think maybe it's a very loose definition of purpose. But it's a Bradford link. And actually, from here on out, we'll be talking Bradford. You'll have heard, Sam, that Bradford was last week made City of Culture for 2025. Mm. For those who don't know, the City of Culture competition is run by DCMS every four years as a kind of regeneration scheme that guarantees millions of pounds worth of funding and investment alongside a year-round jamboree of cultural events and spectacle. It's a real coup for the West Yorkshire city. So to finish, I put together a quick Bradford round. Great. I'm as pumped as Nadine Dorries is at all times. <laughs> Bradford has been crowned curry capital of Britain six <laughs> years in a row, which may have something to do with its large British Asian population. The 2011 census found it had the largest proportion of which ethnic origin in England? Um, Bangladeshi. Pakistani. Incidentally, Bradford is also one of the youngest cities in the UK, with under-18s making up over a quarter of its population. Demographics. Demographics, learning, Mm. edutainment. Next, what is unique about Bradford's mirror pool opened in 2012? It doesn't reflect anything. No, it's got the highest water fountain in the country at 100 foot. It's high. That is high. It's a high fountain. 100 foot. Mm Mm-hmm. Bradford has three parliamentary constituencies all held by Labour. Can you name one of the MPs, or if not, the notorious former MP for Bradford West? Uh, Nash Shah. Yes, correct. And nothing else. George Galloway. 
Oh, is he the notorious baddie? Mm, yeah, yeah, for the respect party. Yeah, silly hat too. Which I think is actually the second time he's come up on the podcast. Now, would you like me to be the cat? Alongside a plethora of punk and northern soul bands, Bradford boasts a top roster of pop alumni. That's a great sentence. Pop alumni. A top roster of pop alumni. Um, I can think of Kiki D. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's not like the pop, pop, pop stuff that I'm thinking of because she's more Motown. She was, in fact, the first uh, British woman to be signed by Motown, I think. Tim, you're just pouring stats at me today. (sighs) Yeah, that's a good one. Who else you got? I got nothing. It's, it's, it's a good set. Gareth Gates. Oh, lovely. Kimberly Walsh of Girls Aloud. And Zayn Malik. Zayn Malik. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not just pop culture. David Hockney, Frederick Delius and the Bronte sisters Brontes. were all born and raised in Bradford. And did you know about the city's rich film heritage? Mm. It's home to the acclaimed National Science and Media Museum, has the UK's first IMAX, and in 2009 was designated the world's first UNESCO city of film, beating Cannes, Venice and LA. But... Can you name a movie with scenes shot in the city? Oh, no, probably not. Maybe Four Lions. Oh, it's such a good film. That's such a good film. I'll put you out of your misery. The Railway Children was filmed there. Mm, uh, or daddy, bits of it. Mm-hmm. The King's Speech, bits of that was filmed there. Brideshead Revisited, the new one with Ben Whishaw. Yes, Paddington. And Monty Python, Meaning of Life. Very good. There's Tim. a scene where nurses are dancing uh, as part of every sperm is sacred. Yes. And that is Bradford. Funnily enough, Seth MacFarlane was really, like, hugely influenced by that particular song. He said mm. of that song, it's so beautifully written, it's musically and lyrically legit. The orchestrations are fantastic. It's treated seriously. And I think there is a, a certain joy to be found crafting and spending a long time on a nonsense song that has no real meaning but just making it really classy you know i couldn't imagine what you meant you got to pick a pocket or two make our garden grow from leonard bernstein's candide the Luke and Leia theme from John Williams' score to Star Wars. The March from Prokofiev's Love for Three Oranges. Parade of the Ewoks from Star Wars. The Sacrifice from Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. The Dune Sea of Tatooine from Star Wars. I'd be furious, nay, even bubbling with rage if I was John Adams. 
the composer or the American president? Well, exactly. Forever being a clarification away from one's own identity. And just when you think you've ploughed enough of a furrow that you might be considered the main John Adams, the John Adams of initial inference, along comes John Luther Adams, another ruddy composer in your lane. Mm, perhaps he should start using his middle name too. It is Coolidge, so perhaps he should. John Coolidge Adams does make him sound like a fridge-freezer magnet, doesn't it? There's no winning for the fella, except perhaps in his very fine musical output. Carved into the musical Mount Rushmore of the American minimalist movement, John Coolidge Adams tends to paint on a colourful orchestral canvas and has written operas on topical subjects. Notably the self-explanatory Nixon in China. Death of Klinghoffer, based on the Palestinian Liberation Front's actions in the 1985 hijacking of the cruise liner the Achille Lauro. And most recently, Dr. Atomic, which is based on the Manhattan Project. But before that... Before he announced his composerly voice to the world with Phrygian gates... Before he'd even unlatched the Phrygian gate. He hadn't so much as spotted the Phrygian style in the field before. Back when he was still shooting womp rats on Tatooine. Before he'd become the John Adams we know and get confused about today. He wrote a gorgeous little triptych called American Standard. Composed in 1973, the score is named with tongue firmly in cheek after the American Standard brand appliances, but also references the standard as a term for a well-known tune. The first is a march, named after the American maestro of the march, John Philip Sousa. The final movement is called Sentimental and is a sweet, hummable ballad. But it's the middle movement, the cheese in our cheese sandwich, that we're looking at for analysis today. Here's a snippet of Christian zeal and activity. I believe that. And I believe that same Jesus is present through the power of the Holy Spirit right here in this room, right now, right now. I believe that. And I believe that same Jesus is present through the power of the Holy Spirit right here in this room, right now, right now. And he wants to meet every day. Having heard that, you might be thinking, it sounds a lot like the soundtrack to Martin Scorsese's 2010 head-spinning Leonardo DiCaprio film, Shutter Island. That'll be because Christian zeal and activity is used in the soundtrack. You might also be thinking, it sounds a bit like Gavin Bryars' 1975, Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. The combination of found audio and strings is certainly similar. They were released together on Brian Eno's Obscure Records in 1975. But whereas Adams instructs the conductor and ensemble to layer their own found audio, Gavin Bryars based his entire composition on the misremembering and improvisations on a hymn of an unknown and uncredited homeless man from Elephant and Castle, demonstrating it is in fact still possible to steal from a man who has nothing. Moving on, just like the Briars, Adams based his work on an old hymn. Old hymn, of course, the pronouns for anyone who still finds Ricky Gervais funny. <laughs> the old hymn is called Onward Christian Soldiers, written by Arthur Sullivan. Of Gilbert and. It sounds like this. In Christian zeal and activity, John Adams slows down that militaristic melody enormously. Play it at normal speed and it sounds like this. Play it John Adams's pace and it sounds like this. 
spacious. And the harmonization adds another layer of character to the sense of listening freefall. Marla Adagietto, eat your heart out. The part leading switches all over the place. And I see we get lots of suspensions set up that then deviate. Yes. A standard suspension works like the climax of Star Wars A New Hope. A precise hit will start a chain reaction which should destroy the station. You know the section. The old man who looks like Norman Lebrecht tells us what's going to happen. We get the setup. Then the predictable thing happens. Or in musical terms. Prepare, suspend, resolve. Whereas in Christian Zealand activity, the suspensions work more like the brilliant early noughties series, Hustle. Adrian Lester just being unbelievably charismatic throughout. Never forget how well he sang Stevie Wonder. In Hustle, they explain the plan, then all you know is that what they've just said will happen, won't happen. At some stage, it'll look like it's all gone wrong, then suddenly Robert Vaughan will pop up and resolve it. Adrian will be smiley, and there'll be lots of cash. In other words... Prepare. Suspend. Hustle. These rerouting hustles mean your ear has to forego any attempt to predict. The piece becomes a series of little surprises. This is mirrored in the sonic found object used on my favourite recording, Ida Devet with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. It's a mangled tape of a southern Baptist preacher telling the parable of the man with the withered hand. Like an Olympic triple jumper, it keeps skipping and jumping. Your brain sort of tries to put the words in order to create sense or reason. An extra layer to this is it's a bit of a biblical text from Mark where the Pharisees are actually looking for a reason to admonish Jesus. Mm, so we're listening for reason in a jumbled story about looking for reason. Meta. Too bloody right. But of course, there isn't a real order. No pattern to the skipping. It too is unpredictable and our brains are just creating false patterns. A lovely word called an apophony. A conclusion based on irrational data, as opposed to an epiphany where you change your mind based on new information. Mm, a bit like the conspiracy theorists. Exactly. And a side note here, do delve into the bigger Luke theory about the original Star Wars trilogy. There are people who genuinely believe that there is a Luke Prime and a second bigger Luke character. Were the Luke as an example of such superstition? <laughs> What I most enjoy about this piece, written by young John Coolidge Adams, is it makes me listen in a different way. Even out of the context of the concert hall or live performance, my ears get drawn to each of these unpredictable turns. Young, naive John Adams, before he was a big name, makes me listen in a naive way. I feel startled by each new harmony in this old hymn. And what's best is that when I go and listen to other pieces, that naivety stays with me, and I realise what the composer has written wasn't inevitable. They could have gone in a different direction. It could have been Hustle rather than Star Wars. It makes me feel as though I'm sat in a movie theatre in 1975, a few years after Brian Eno has released that disc, and I just don't know what's going to happen in this new sci-fi movie. And then suddenly... Bam! Morris Murphy and the gang slap you in the chops with John Williams' best C major. Imagine what it must have felt like to watch Star Wars for the first time. John Adams makes me hear and feel that proper awesome wonderment in music and art. Try and emphasize. Composer Effect File. 
John Adams. Born February 15th, 1947 in Worcester, Massachusetts. Both of the composer's parents were musicians. His mother was a singer with big bands and his father was a clarinetist. Adams took up the clarinet when he was eight and started composing age 10. Whilst an undergraduate at Harvard, he wrote a letter to Leonard Bernstein criticizing the Chichester Psalms. In the early 1970s, Adams wrote several pieces of electronic music for a homemade modular synthesizer he called Studebaker. He called his score for the Carl Jung documentary A Matter of Heart a stunning mediocrity. Adams has worked with director Peter Sellers on all of his operas since Nixon in China. Death of Klinghoffer, Adams' second opera, has caused controversy, resulting in the UK premiere being delayed by 10 years. After the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, the New York Philharmonic commissioned Adams to write a memorial piece for the victims. On the Transmigration of Souls includes the taped readings of the names of the victims mixed with the sounds of the city. It won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Music as well as the 2005 Grammy for Best Contemporary Composition. John Adams served as the second president of the United States from 1797 to 1801. John Quincy Adams served as the sixth president of the United States from 1825 to 1829. John Bodkin Adams was a British GP, convicted fraudster and suspected serial killer. John Crouch Adams was a mathematician who predicted the position of Neptune, calculating discrepancies in the orbit of Uranus. John Luther Adams is another Pulitzer Prize winning composer. Hey Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast. What is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. Quick bit of housekeeping before we sign off. Firstly, thank you to Nandine Dorries for choosing Bradford as the 2025 City Culture and giving me the opportunity to create a Bradford quiz. You've learnt so much. Huge amount. Second point of order, Bernard Hughes, friend of the pod, he has a new album of his choral music out with Epiphany. It's called Precious Things. It's beautiful. I thoroughly recommend you go and buy it. Buy a sweet, hard copy Remember to share the podcast with as many people as you possibly can. Spread the joy. And if you would like to sponsor us, look at the coffee page. If you are a small business or medium-sized business and would like to take out a proper advert in the podcast, then do get in touch. We like making fun jingles. Every day I step out of the path of a man named J.S. Bach. He's always bumping us over, you see. I didn't like it, not one bit Made me feel like a piece of dirt Till a thought occurred to me Today you would ask Bach to step aside? Yes! Please move, Mr Bach, you're in my way No, 
please? No. I always move for you. I wouldn't say that, but go on. Oh, you've been a big meanie. Yeah, I have no opinion. That really hurts my feelings. I mean, I don't, are you telling me or are you asking? I have a little cry now. I can't really address that. It's an absurd notion. <laughs> no.